But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the neuro... Pigeon learned that picking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? Ten things that before schedules of reinforcement. Reward, and you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with pigeon pecking at the disc. Welcome back to Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast for Episode 6. I'm your host, Dave Broadbeck. Today on the show, we have uh, Associate Professor of Psychology at Algoma University. Yay, that's us. Uh, Lori Bloomfield. She's also my department chair. So, you know, I hope this goes well. Uh, Lori uh, did her BA at Algoma back when we were just Algoma University College uh, back in 2000. And uh, when she finished that in psychology, finished that, she went on to work in Ron Wiseman's lab at Queens. I believe she was Ron's last graduate student uh, just before he retired. And uh, she, in fact, won an award from the Canadian Psychological Association for uh, her master's thesis. I've never won any awards for anything I've ever written. Then she went on and worked with uh, Chris Sturdy, uh, who was our, if you remember our guest on episode one of Spit and Twitches, uh, at the University of Alberta, where she won a couple, I think, I think a couple of uh, HEB awards, which were given to outstanding graduate student presentations at the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science. I've never won anything for any talks I've ever given. I think I give pretty good talks. Anyway, um, and then she went on uh, and in 2007 joined our faculty here at Algoma. Um, recently, she uh, a few years ago, she uh, obtained an NSERC Dis- Discovery Grant and uh, set up a nice, nice lab, and she's got a few uh, undergraduate students working with her, uh, one of which, in fact, was my daughter, who was also won a bunch of awards. I never won anything. And uh, they, and they they've, her and her students have been studying all kinds of different things uh, about bird uh, communication, chickadee communication especially. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, the thing to me that is exciting about this is this is my first face-to-face interview I'll do for this podcast, uh, and I haven't done one of those since the since the heady days of Thunderbird 6. Uh, but also, uh, I, guess, I guess I did do uh, an early live version of, of interview version of this, of this podcast with Lori in 2011. If you go back at DaveBroadback.com, you can find that. So this is going to be a lot of fun for me, and it's a former student of mine, uh, and now a colleague, uh, and a great colleague. Uh, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lori Bloomfield. All right, so this is a bit of an experiment. This is the first time I'm going to be trying to do this live using Boss Jock Studio. For those of you out there who are podcasters know what I mean. Those of you who are not podcasters really don't care. So I'm sitting here with Lori Bloomfield. Hey, Lori. Hey. This is fun because it's, um, it's actually a reprieve, a reprieve, reprise, reprise. It's a real word. Of, uh, we recorded a long time ago, back when I first thought about this project, back in 2011. Anybody wants to go listen to that interview, I guess they can. That's uh, DaveBroadbeck.com. Lori uh, is an experimental psychologist and associate professor of psychology. You got promoted two years ago, right? Uh, something like that. Yeah. 2012, maybe? Maybe yeah. three now. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, no time flies. Uh, here at Algoma University. We're sitting in her, her office doing it live. I've got one back, one recorder running and two backup recorder run, recorders running. We're not going to mess anything up. Um, 
I wouldn't make any promises yet. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been here since 2007. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Right after I defended my PhD, I hopped on board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you went to t you did your undergrad here. I did. Yeah. Back in the days. <laughs> yes. Back in the previous century. Yeah. Uh, Another era. Yeah. It was, it was a different millennium, really. Yeah. Um, and I, in fact, I, I taught you a few courses. Um, yeah. I think I left when you finished second year or third. I can't remember. I had just finished my second year, but I had taken already, um, for example, the advanced stats. That's right. So that I could be a TA in the third year for basic and advanced stats. You were the TA the year after I left, right? Yes. Yes, because Lynn Honey was the TA the year you took it. Yeah. The, the lovely and talented Lynn Honey. Yes. Um, yes. So, uh, I guess I ask everybody this question because the, the the stuff that we do is not what people think of when they think of psychology. So, what got you into doing this kind of work? It's funny you say people don't think that because that's always my intro to myself. Uh, I do my about me thing for my intro class. Yeah. You know, and uh, I said, and I study songbirds, and that's right. You can actually do that in psychology. Um, it was an accident getting into uh, specifically studying songbirds. Mm -hmm. When I was a student here, uh, I took some interesting courses. First thing off the bat was the brain chapter in intro psych. Okay. I thought, okay, we know about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do we know this? Yeah, yeah. So that kind of got me going and, and got me into brain and behavior. And uh, uh, my professor at the time, Dr. Dave Broadbeck, oh, um, had talked. He had talked a lot about uh, different research that had been done yeah. that you know helped us understand, for example, uh, the size of the hippocampus and how it might change in some species mm -hmm. depending on whether they're food stores or not, yep. or uh, song learners or not. For been example, milking that crap for almost thirty years. Well, you know, it's a good thing because <laughs> yeah. I, I soaked it up. I soaked that milk up, and uh, <laughs> I. Uh, so then I took uh, your animal behavior course. I'm looking at your, your book there. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, I'll cock it. Um, I had taken that, and uh, and again, I got to give a presentation, and mm -hmm. uh, I just thought, you know, this is really neat. What I really nice. liked was research with animals. It wasn't, uh, here's a human, give them a piece of paper and a pencil and find out how they feel. <laughs> I wasn't interested in that. I Hello. wanted, what I really liked was the experimental design. I really thought, okay. this is a challenge to try to get at the answers how do you ask these questions of animals that are that are not verbal? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I really got started was just appreciating the methodology behind the studies. Yeah. Um, and so you know, one of my first interests was uh, uh, spatial cognition. Mm -hmm. So you know, how do how do animals find their way in space? And I started thinking about birds and migratory patterns, mm -hmm. um, and had done a little bit of research and. And, uh, and then I, you know, kind of got swayed a little bit and just into communication because I thought about, you know, how do these birds survive the minus frickin' 30 yeah. that we have here in the winter? Yeah. Um, and why aren't they migrating? Yeah, and I mean, I think people don't understand that. It, well, not everybody. I think some people, even, you know, listeners that are pretty sophisticated, which I think most of our this audience is, I think they don't really, it doesn't occur to them or they don't put together the fact that food stores actually don't migrate. Exactly. It's, it's right. a strategy to deal with a fluctuating food supply um, and I think a lot of people just don't, don't, it doesn't, don't sort of put it together right. uh, unless they're really into it. Yeah. Yep. And so that's how I kind of put it together and, and that's what, sort of what got me into songbirds. Um, so for my undergraduate thesis I looked at the temperature effects on foraging. Uh, so I provided the birds with different types of foods, mm -hmm. high fat, low fat and so on. Um, 
but in order to get more information on just what birds should I use, uh, I had spoken with you, you had, you know, con con directed me to a couple of other people, and one of those other people uh, I had found was Ron Wiseman, Dr. Ron Wiseman from Queen's University. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know what, let's throw him an email and see if I can get some advice from him. Yeah. Um, so I did, and he gave me some advice back, and he followed that email up with, are you considering graduate school? <laughs> nice. And I thought, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. So I stayed in touch with him, um, and so uh, that's sort of how I ended up studying right. communication and songbirds. I remember uh, when, uh, it was probably when you had taken the advanced stats class, and I remember saying to you, have you ever considered graduate school? And I believe your reply was, what's that? What's that? But, I mean, yes. you know, a lot of people, and I mean, I think you're in the same boat as me, are you the first person in your family to go to university? Um, I'm the first person to finish university. My okay. older brother went uh, for a year or two. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. you're in this sort of same, like being a yep. first-generation student, as we call them yes. here, right? I mean, that's exactly what I was, and I think that I'm trying to explain to my folks. No, I'm just going to keep going to school for a really long time, mm. um, and I'll never have to wear a suit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or learn how to tie a tie. Uh, yes, I mean, it's it's not un uncommon when I when I say that to people, you know, when I, and I, every couple of years I'll pull somebody aside and I'll say, if you ever thought I would graduate school? Yeah. And about half the time they go, I don't really even know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not an uncommon thing. And the, yeah, that's just it. We weren't, you know, when I was a student here, it wasn't really, um, uh, it wasn't really stressed. It wasn't really taught about. Yeah. Now I spend... It's changed a lot. The first couple of classes so. of my fourth year honors course mm -hmm. telling you, well, here's what, gra telling you, not you, yeah. them, here's what graduate school is, yeah. this is what scholarships are, yep. that's what you apply for. I can remember the, the uh, fact, uh, the graduate student assistant at Western when I went there to visit Dave Sherry yeah. uh, had asked me, did you apply for NSERC? And I went, uh, Did I do what with a who now? What's that? Yeah. No idea what that was because yeah. you know people here hadn't hadn't told me this is something you should be doing before going or considering grad right. school. And I'd left by then. You were gone. Yes. Uh, so well, I was. I and you know not, not voluntarily. It was a long story. <laughs> uh, but I'm back. I'm back. Um, did, was graduate school a big change for you? Um, it was. It was, uh, but for the better because <laughs> I walked into a lab that had one graduate student who was wrapping up her last year of her PhD, Dr. Mm -hmm. Leslie Philmore. Oh, Leslie. Leslie yes. was my assistant when I was a postdoc at Western. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, wonderful person. And oh, yeah. she dedicated as much time as she could in That's her last super. year of her PhD to help me out, teach me what I needed to do. Um, but, you know, she was busy finishing up. So finishing up. I was left to myself quite a bit because uh, Ron had um, moved down to Florida. His yeah. wife was going to graduate school in Florida, so he took him self and his boat and his wife down to Florida and uh, so I had the run of the lab and so what I did was I, I went through old materials uh, there were old like uh, bird running sheets and so on Neat. and I could kind of see oh this is how okay. you shape the bird and and so that's essentially how I taught myself and the technicians uh, at Queens were amazing okay uh, so anytime I had a problem with any of the equipment it's like one-off equipment uh, yes. You could bring it down to them, and so long as you were nice to them, they were nice back. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's one thing I've learned, uh, one thing that, that Leslie taught me was be nice to these people. Yes. Because you need them, and, and so I always appreciate the technicians, and a shout-out to the ones at the U of A, too, Lou and Isaac and uh, Al, because they've set my, up my lab here at Alcoma. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's <clears throat> it's one of those cases, I mean, I just remember a piece of advice my dad gave me when I got my first job, and he said, be nice to people that clean their floors, they actually, and, and, and do your typing, as he said, they, mm -hmm. they actually work for a living. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so it was nice because, uh, you know, at graduate school, I did, I mean, I spent nine to five doing research. In fact, Ron invited me out 
a month before school started yeah. and paid me as a full-time research assistant wow. in his lab so that I could learn microscopy. Oh, so, uh, you know, the, some of the, the researchers that had been in the lab before me had done some uh, some work and there was a lot of stuff to look at through the microscope. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, he paid me eight hours a day to come in and kind of get a little bit of a head start. Oh, that's really neat. Knowing that he was, you know, taken off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abandoning you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, when the stuff you started to work on in grad school is, I think, still been pretty influential in the work you do now. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, and of course, when you finished with Ron, you went and worked with episode one guest, Chris Sturdy. Oh, right? Chris. Yeah. Chris is, I, in fact, Chris, I, I was texting with him just before, and uh, he's, he said to say hi. So. Oh, very hi, nice. Hi from Chris. Hi back. <laughs> um, and uh, so you went out, and you were, you were Ron's last grad student. Yes. And Chris's first grad student, correct? Yes. Yes, and Chris was uh, Alpha and Omega. Yeah, it's it's definitely a you know a family relations. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, Chris uh, had finished up at Queen's University the year before I had started. So you know, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. Uh, Ninety nine, I think, and I joined their lab in two thousand. Okay. So he was already down in uh, oh crap, North Carolina Duke uh, University. Duke, yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, Ron had said to me, uh, you know, what do you want to do for your for your master's research? And I went, oh, I thought you were going to tell me what I had to do. <laughs> I thought you had a project for <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so I, I went away and I came back and did some work and uh, came back and after doing some some a little bit of research and yeah. said. You know, I didn't know that there were other species of chickadees out there. Okay. I'm wondering if we should, you know, if anyone's ever, you know, compared one to the other and, you know, how they treat each other's calls. Nice. Um, and so that's where it started. That's a really neat question, too. Yeah. And for someone who was, at the time, admittedly naive. Very uh, naive. Uh, that's, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, so, so, fortunately, I had, I, I didn't even know Chris really existed at the time. Um <laughs> And so Ron said, well, I happen to have a colleague down in, in North Carolina. And I said, where the Carolina chickadees are. <laughs> See? Yeah, so there we it's go. So, so we recruited Chris to, uh, to stomp around the bush and record birds for me oh, on, nice. on cassettes and <laughs> mail great. them to me. That's so cool. Because now uh, you would get a digital recording and you'd put it on Dropbox, right? Yeah, exactly. That's great. Yeah, but that was, that was, it was different school. then, yeah. So I'd sit there for hours on end listening to cassettes and, and digitizing the okay. sounds, so putting them into the computer. Yeah, yeah. Um, a funny story because uh, Leslie in the lab had said, you know what you should do? She said, you know that you got to give Chris authorship on the paper, right, that you write? I said, oh, yeah. She said, send him an email and ask him, you know, what's the going rate for postdocs these days? What do I owe you for this? So I did. I thought, oh, okay, I don't know the guy from a hole in the ground. He's sending me this stuff. So, oh, Chris, uh, what's the going rate? What's the stipend that I should pay you for uh, for all these recordings? And he was very diplomatic when he wrote back. He said, don't worry about your money. You have a very small stipend in graduate school. Just give me authorship. Uh, yeah, well, and I think was, uh, one, one hopes that's how any of us would, would, would reply, right? Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, you know, so, and I think after he found out that it was just a joke, he thought, well, that was pretty cool of, of me being confident and comfortable enough, yeah. you know, to try to pull one over on this guy I barely even know yeah. who's working for me, essentially. That's right. Uh, well, doing some work for me. So, so that's essentially how that started. And uh, so, uh, you know, when I finished up my master's after two years in Ron's lab, uh, Ron was, that was it. He wasn't taking any more graduate sure. students. So I was alone for those two years, essentially, save for Leslie being there the first year. Yep. Um, so I packed up his lab, rented a truck, 
hauled it all out to Alberta and uh, started working there with Chris using some of the old equipment and using that as a template to, to build new equipment, updated stuff. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, <clears throat> the things that you often have talked about uh, when, whenever you and I have talked about this stuff, and in fact, in the uh, uh, little bio that is behind the scenes, folks, the blog posts, the guests write them. Um, <laughs> so I just changed all the I to her or him. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, one of the things that you've talked about, you, t- you talked about it in that post, and one of the things that you've often said to me uh, when you talk about this stuff is that the different components of a chickadee call mm. mean different things. So walk me through this a bit, because I, mean, I know a lot about chickadee memory, but I don't know yeah. a great deal about chickadee call, I, I know most people, but I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot. Sure. So there's these different notes. Yeah. So yeah. I know you guys always talk about these D notes. What are the, what are the notes? I know there's the chickadee DD. Yeah. What, what are these things? What, right. what are the notes? So, I mean, that's one of the cool things about the chickadee call is that it is made up of just four different note types. Okay. And we call them A, B, C, and D simply because we got to call them something. Got to call them something. <laughs> so the chicka part is yeah. made up of those high frequency, sometimes almost kind of, you know, scratchy sounding yeah. uh, A, B, C notes. And then the very end, the one that people recognize, the D, 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 is the D note. Oh, okay. um, I always hoped that was true. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so good. it is as logical as one would, would hope. <laughs> uh, and so... <laughs> They can repeat these notes within a call. Mm-hmm. They can completely leave some of them out within a call. Yeah. And I want to know why. So, yes. so my research started out with the structure of the call. So myself and, and, and other colleagues in, in Chris's lab uh, really started breaking down these calls and analyzing them. Yeah. The start frequency, peak frequency, and so on. Okay. About 10 to 14 different measurements per note. And each note is about, you know, maybe 10 to 20 milliseconds in length. Okay. So we're gathering a lot of information on them. Yeah. So we understand the structure of the calls of multiple species of chickadees. Yeah. And and now I want to know what the function of they them sure. are. There's got to be a reason. So my research during my PhD started out kind of looking at that, but more on a on a on a grand scale. Let's just see can they discriminate uh, between one species and another species chickadee calls. Okay. Um, and they could. Yeah. So very good. Now that I know that. I can ask, what are they using to discriminate? And so I was able to use software and cut up the calls. Yeah. So if I train a bird uh, to go to a black cat chickadee call in an operant chamber, yeah. and to no-go to a mountain chickadee call, uh-huh. and then I present them with a call that has some notes from a black cat and some notes from a mountain, okay. what do they do? Okay. If they go, they perceive it as a black cat chickadee. Yes. If they don't, they perceive it as a mountain chickadee. Okay. And so I was able to kind of break down and uh, the calls and... Basically, what it came down to was those terminal D notes, DDD, yeah. are the ones that they're using to discriminate because there was no difference really in their responding to the many different types of calls I gave them when I messed with those introductory ABC calls. But the, or the, notes. the, 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 for the ABC notes mm. do sound, at least to my ear, mm. different between. I mean, I, I know what a, a black hat chickadee sounds like, and I know what a, 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 a boreal chickadee sounds like because mm-hmm. I've heard them both calling. Yeah. And they sound different to me. But would they if you cut those D notes? That's off, that's right? maybe. I mean, maybe it's all context, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Fair enough. Because I mean, I've always, I've always said that. Mount, uh, sorry, a boiled chickadees kind of sound like black cap chickadees that smoke a lot. They have a yeah. much more sort of throaty. Yeah. Like they smoke players' planes or sort of camels or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or jetins maybe in Quebec. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of these things where. I guess it's the con- probably the context of those D notes that maybe yeah. that, that I'm that I'm responding to. Do they look different in a sonogram? Yeah, a lot of them do. I mean, there's some similarities between some of the notes, and and some chickadee species don't produce 
a note that looks exactly like another one, so we can label it something different. Okay. So Carolina chickadees, it seemed like there were two or three different types of bee notes. Oh. Um, and they seem to have happened on a, a regular enough basis that I, when we did the sorting of them, I classified them as B1, B2, and B3. Okay. Um, so there are similarities, there are differences. I even have a hard time telling the chickadee calls apart when I'm just listening to those introductory uh, uh, notes. But okay. the question is, why are they there? Yeah. They've got to be there. Yeah, exactly. That's where I was going to add like those to ask. Yeah. Yes. So that's sort of where we're going to now. So I'm really trying, I'm still kind of working on the structure part in my lab, um, but we're going to try to tap yeah. into the function at the same time yeah. using some different uh, different techniques. Right. A lot of the stuff you've done over the years, uh, the stuff you just talked about, it uses an operant approach, which mm -hmm. is, I think a lot of people, well, a lot of people, they think about stuff about bird communication, think about, uh, well, I mean, the first thing that immediately comes to mind is bird song stuff from Peter Marler and whatever. But I often think about playback experiments in the wild. Mm, yep. Um, what are the advantages of doing it in the operant way, and what are the disadvantages? Well, one of the first advantages is the bird can't fly away. Yeah, <laughs> and it's pretty clear. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The researcher can walk away. That's what I always say. The yeah. big, biggest the, the thing Skinner gave us is you can go do something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I, you know, I've done field work in the past. I worked on a study during my PhD. Uh, I bet you I tried it about six different times. I trooped through the bush. I mean, I I, I walked through waist high snow trying to find birds to do mm -hmm. playbacks and it never turned out it never worked out right I tried it again a couple of uh, winters ago I had a, a research assistant yeah, uh, yeah. Madeline Broadbeck as it turns out <laughs> for, for, for. Uh, I dragged her through the bush yes. and through the snow uh, trying again um, you know the birds just don't respond the birds are pretty smart I mean I can't tell you how many times I've gone out to the field with my speaker and a bird flies in and like lands on my speaker and looks at me doesn't give me a vocal <laughs> response it's just like yes so great you called what do you want yeah. Um, so yeah they just don't seem to be right. motivated to to, okay. to to respond and and they're pretty like I said pretty quick learners so they might respond from a distance but as soon as they come in they're just like yeah whatever they don't care so right. in the opera chamber like I said you've got them there you feed them as reinforcement only, so once you've trained them, that's basically the only way they can get food. And okay. man, they're good. They'll do about 2,000 trials a day. Yeah, see, that's, that's the other thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you can really get uh, you know, a lot of data uh, fairly quickly. Now, you know, you got to go through about a three-week or so training process, which sadly gets one sentence in the manuscript. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes. it's a lot of work for a sentence, but, uh, but uh, so that's basically it. Also, you can test finer tuned things. So yeah. in the lab, I can test, like, what if I just change this by a little teeny bit, whereas, you know, that sort of uh, change would degrade over distance mm -hmm. in the field. So you can't really oh, test true, yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, what about the idea, I mean, what about the difference in sort of, um, I, I'm thinking back to a paper, a John Krebs paper about, oh, I think, was it, was it Great Tit Calls difference between the ones in the UK and the ones in like Iran or something. Mm. This is obviously before the revolution in Iran. <laughs> uh, and um, they sound different when you play them in... i got to see if I hope I'm remembering this correctly. They sound different when you when you play them in a lab. Sorry, when you... When you, when you uh, yes, when you, when you play them in a lab, mm. when you capture the birds, they okay. sound different. But when you put them out in a different density of wood, they sound exactly the same. 
Oh, the birds do. Yeah, I yeah. See. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, is you think is there any? You have any fear about that? That maybe the context of the environment is lost or something? I mean, I I, I don't, but I'm, I'm just it's a question. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's something that's been raised by reviewers before, especially when I use the stimuli in my opera chambers that are recorded in my sound attenuating chamber. Okay. So I capture the birds once they acclimate to the lab. You know, once a week or so, we put them into the sound attenuating chamber, set yep. them up with a microphone, and record yep. them. Try to get a database of stimuli to use sure. down the road. Um, reviewers have mentioned that you know on multiple occasions. Uh, what we've done, and and as far as we know about the, the, the macro structure, there's very few differences between the calls recorded in the lab and the calls okay. recorded in the field. Now that being said, I have a student now, uh, Thomas Grew, who is going to be looking at the micro structure of each individual note. Okay. So how much do each, how much does each individual note vary? And uh, so we're going to just kind of start with that, rather than just looking at differences across species or across individuals or across sex. Um, okay. We're going to look like within a bird, how much variation okay. does a bird produce, and okay. see if that kind of gets us somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I've had. Well, it's the same thing. Last couple of episodes, I've talked to people. I talked to Matt Murphy and I talked to Aaron Blaisdell, and with both those guys, I mentioned, and I think also with with Neil McMillan, when we were all of us when we've talked, one of the things that people often seem concerned about generally is when you take get in an operant chamber and you give an animal, and in this case, what I was talking with these guys, with say pigeons looking at pictures, oh, yeah. do they see those pictures as a representation of the real world? Yeah. Um, if they respond that way. I don't care. That's sort of my view. Right. Those other three guys actually said, no, I think it matters a lot more, but I don't think it actually matters a great deal. My view is, look, <laughs> if they're discriminating some way, yeah. and they're, it's it's like people, I was asked in my PhD oral, can chickadees see color? I said, well, they can clearly remember colors. Yeah. I don't, I didn't do the psychophysics of chickadee color vision, right. which I actually said, which was very flippant. <laughs> um, and then I said to the guy, but the equipment's in the lab if you want to do it, uh, which was, again, very flippant, but Sarah had a big smile on her face when I did that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, I just don't think it's a huge issue, but people, as you said, reviewers do, and I mean, these other three guys did, so I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm in the minority, well, clearly, maybe I am. Yeah, well, in more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, it, I mean, it all depends on what the question is that you're asking, right? Yep. I mean, I'm just simply, you know, it's, it, let's just go back a few years, I was simply asking, can the birds discriminate between these two species? Right? Yep. Not whether they can discriminate uh, between contexts within a species yes. or anything like that. I think Marcia Spech did a study yeah. back a few years ago looking at 2D versus 3D. Yes. Uh, That's yeah. one of the things I always bring up. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. there it is. I mean, the, it's, it's darn clear. And I mean, yeah. Vern Honig did some stuff where he was showing pigeons pictures of one end of a hallway in his lab and pictures of another, and half the birds got a pic got reinforced for the left half, left, you know, the left wall and half the birds got reinforced with pecking up pictures of the right wall and he just let them loose in the lab and, and, and they, they went one way or the other. I mean, it's actually a brilliant experiment. Oh, it would be hilarious to watch too. Oh, I'm sure it is, right? I mean, um, and I remember him talking about that at, uh, oh God, what was that thing called? The Conference on Complex and Extended Stimuli. I think it was. That's a great title. I'm waiting, there's a good book. I'm waiting for the movie. Uh, it's 89 at Dalhousie. But uh, yeah, it, it, I guess, I mean, if you wanted to say, can black-capped chickadees tell that's a Carolina chickadee? Mm -hmm. That's a different question than what do they use to discriminate between the two? Yes. And I mean, that's more what you're asking, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So I mean, the kind of questions you're asking, it actually isn't that big a deal. Yeah. I think, you know, when you mentioned the field playback studies, that's where it would be a concern. In other words, yep. if the 
and I'm presuming there's got to be something and that the birds are communicating with these different mm -hmm. uh, variations of the calls. Yep. So imagine I put the bird into the sound attenuating chamber and I record a bunch of calls and it, let's suppose I can translate chickadee and the, the bird is saying, get me out of here, get me out of here or something. <laughs> or maybe he's just sitting there going, holy crap, I'm bored. Now, if I take those two calls and play them out in the field, I might get different responses yes. to those because it is conveying potentially a different message yes. to the birds in the field. Yes. That's a different study entirely. Yeah, and that, yeah. it's an entirely different set of questions. Yes. Uh, fascinating question. Yeah. Well, and see, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to figure yeah. out what are these birds trying to say. There's got to be some sort of reason for the variations. Yeah. Got to be. Yeah. So It was funny when I was, you know, and just even to this day, whenever I hear chickadee calls, uh, or even song, you don't, when you're taught about this stuff in school, generally, in, as an undergrad, you're taught that this is what the song looks like. Mm. This is what the call looks like. You're not taught... And it kind of varies a lot. Yeah. Because, uh, no. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's a level of complexity that isn't really necessary to get the point across. Absolutely. But one of the things that you notice very quickly working with little birds is that, little songbirds, is that they do say different things. Yeah. Right? Um, I'm hoping to eventually get Jan's foot on here. Oh, uh, nice. And uh, get the sort of the chickadee song angle on, on uh, talk about this, because, of course, she does uh, stuff in the field, too. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully, I said, hopefully she does her email. Come on, Jen. Um, <laughs> Come on, reply. Yes. Um, now, some of the other stuff you've done, the other, you sent me a really cool paper about gene expression, and Chris talked a bit about this stuff, too. Oh, did he? Yeah. Um, well, what's his stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, you, it's you, <laughs> too, right? So. Um, now, that kind of work, it's a bit, well, I find it a bit complicated. Can you kind of walk yeah. me through that stuff a little bit? No, I find it a bit complicated. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I can stop the recording yeah. right now. That's it. That's it. End the show. Yes. Um, no, I think the paper I sent you, I mean, the reason I, I think it was the, uh, the mobbing calls. Yeah. Okay. So, that study, uh, I think it was uh, first authored by Mark Avery, who yeah. I worked with in, in Chris's lab. That study, I found incredible because it goes or it shows the point that the birds are saying different things. Mm -hmm. So we've got two groups of, of chickadees. One group of chickadees is, is, is calling saying it's a high threat predator. Another group of chickadees is calling saying it's a low threat predator. Yes. How do we know that? Okay. Because of the response in the brain. There's mm -hmm. a differential response. Now if you and I were to walk through the bush yep. and we heard a chickadee doing a mobbing call, we wouldn't know if it was mobbing to, uh, calling to uh, a squirrel, a crow, uh, a high threat owl, a low threat owl. Mm -hmm. But the chickadees themselves seem to know. That's what that paper yeah. essentially shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can't tell the difference, but they can. So that goes back to my question about function. Yes. Even though the calls don't sound different to us, they obviously are conveying different messages to the birds. Yeah. So, yeah, so that study, it basically uh, it, what we do is uh, we present the birds with, with a stimuli and a sound attenuating chamber mm -hmm. to the point of habituation, an hour or so. Um, and then we sacrifice them and mm -hmm. we section the brain and stain it uh, with particular antibodies that will uh, show us the proteins involved um, in neural activity. Okay. So you would expect high neural activity to something that's biologically salient or relevant. Sure. And less neural activity to something that's like, eh, don't care about, right? right. And so that's essentially what we're presuming when we see this staining 
in these microscope slides yes. is that it's got something to do with uh, uh, you know relevant stimulus that the bird heard earlier. Okay. So that's the gist. But that study, like I said, uh, you know, that was something that. Uh, uh, I hadn't been involved in necessarily in the planning and execution of, um, um, but I was fortunate enough to get on the paper, which was wonderful. Uh, but uh, just the, the whole concept of the birds calling essentially the same call, but being perceived as differently. So the birds that heard the high threat owl sh heard other birds calling in response to a high threat owl. Yes. Showed high uh, neural activity, if you will. Yeah. The birds that heard calling, chickadees calling to a low threat owl, mm -hmm. showed less neural activity. Right. So to me that's, that's, that's essentially kind of just feeds right into what I'm looking for. Right. Uh, you know, are these different calls, whether they're chickadees or mobbing calls or, or gargle calls, which is a whole other thing I'm, gonna, I'm kind of getting my, well, myself into. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's got to be a reason for it. Gargle calls, same idea, although it's composed of like 15 to 30 notes yes. in a call. There's got to be a reason for it. There's got to be reasons for the variations. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not easy, but what the hell? <laughs> I mean, the first, time, first time I heard that gargle call when I was in grad school, I thought that bird that bird's got to be sick. Yeah, it's choking <laughs> or something. something wrong. Like a meal <laughs> went down the wrong way. There's got to be something really wrong. Here. Yeah. And it, it's and I, I asked actually, yeah. animal tech guy said, it's like bird 102's in trouble." Because, <laughs> what do you say? Meet this weird. No, he's that's a that's a call. Oh, I, I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be this. I'm this smart kid, and that's you know. I yeah. Don't even. Apparently not. Yeah. Apparently not. <laughs> kind of slow. Fooled a lot of people. Um, so that kind of work, working with, you know, things like gene expression, mm -hmm. um, you're interested in it as a means to an end, as a way to understand the cognitive behavioral stuff. You're, you're yeah. not interested in, in it in its own... As, 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 you're, you're interested in it as a, as a means to an end, not just like yeah. the way, same way I, I'm, I like statistics, but I'm interested in it as a way to analyze data. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so basically we can use that as a technique to determine what is important to the bird. Okay. Um, but that being said, you might not see, um, because it's a different, it's just a different, different. technique, right? Okay. You could look at a bird and, and, and present it with a chickadee call and it does nothing. It just, you know, it just yep. flies, whatever. Yep. Um, so you're not getting the behavioral outcome to suggest that that call that you've presented mm -hmm. has any biological relevance to the bird, uh, whereas the brain might show you differently, okay. essentially. So it's just another way of, of trying to determine what the bird might uh, think is important, okay. I guess. Um, I don't have the yeah. means to do it here. No, God, no, 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 no. no, no. I don't no. have the time either. No, of course, no, <laughs> clearly not. People who understand this, this our school is, a, is, a, is a, only undergraduates. Um, which and I was going to ask you about that. There's a bit of a challenge, probably, mm. as someone who's you know you, you've got a, a, a answer funded lab up and running. Yep. It must be a real is it a real challenge to do stuff like that where there aren't people that are going to be around for three or four years or five years. Yeah, absolutely. I have um, you know I've had some great research assistants in the past. Uh, I've had a couple summer NSERC students, Jenna Congdon, mm -hmm. who's now working with Chris Sturdy. Yep. Uh, your daughter, Madeline Broadbeck, mm -hmm. who's now at uh, Western University. Yep. Um, so it's a shame to lose those high-quality research assistants. Right. But I've had a couple uh, in my lab, one for a year now, Thomas Grew. Mm -hmm. and he's, uh, he's highly motivated and really intelligent and doing well. And I've known Tom for a long time, I guess, cool. since he was 14. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, he's in his fourth year now, so yeah. you know I'm losing him, too. Oh, damn. Um, and a, a nice young lady, Kate.
Caitlin Townsend. Oh, sure, yeah. She's been uh, in my lab for two years now, over two years now. So she kind of runs the lab. She knows more about the lab than I do. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> you know. Newfoundland, Corey Spracklin. Yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, so uh, you know, every once in a while I check with her and say, are you changing the lights, you know, the on-off times for the lights? Oh, yeah. I said, one of these days you should show me how to do that. <laughs> um, and she's in her fourth year, too, so I'm losing her, too. So I just actually mentioned to them last week, I said, keep your eyes and ears open for a good second or third year student that you can train, like, now. Yeah. <laughs> so it is tough to, um, you know, to find good, reliable undergraduate sure. research assistants. Not that undergraduates aren't reliable. No, but it's, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a level of maturity and commitment that you, yeah. it's hard to find in someone who is in, say, for example, just come in a first year, like in second year, start yeah. in second year. Yeah. It's just not something you see very often, and it's, it's just a matter of maturity, I think, a lot of it, right? And think about the high level of commitment that's required. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with live animals. Yeah, birds you, don't know it's a weekend. Yeah, that's right. They don't care <laughs> yeah. that it's Christmas Day. That's I don't know right. how many times have I fed the I've birds had on that expression. Day. I've heard you use that expression before, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you know, the last thing you can do is just say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling good, I'm not going in today. Right? Yeah. No, you can't. Because no. you think you're not feeling good. How do you think the bird's going to feel yeah. when it's when you it know, starts to death? That's right. When it's two minutes from death. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the thing about the. And again, people that don't, have never worked with these little 11, 12 milligram, or milligram gram birds, 12 milligram birds. Those are very small. Okay. Uh, 12 gram birds. Mm. Um, if they don't eat about half an hour, 45 minutes after they wake up in the morning, they just they. They die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is why they store food. This is the function of it. So Absolutely. they can find it in the morning so they don't die. Yeah, yeah. And that was part of my undergraduate thesis. I talked about uh, uh, energy expenditure overnight, especially yeah. with extremely cold temperatures, right? right? So they're, they're shivering. They're expending a lot of yep. energy, shivering or, or going into that hypothermia sort of stage. Yes, uh, all puffed up. Yeah, yep. to, to you know, try to reduce their body temperature. There's less, less difference between their body temperature and the ambient temperature. Mm -hmm. and yeah, absolutely. So even water. They go without water for a day and they die. Oh, sure. Yeah, so... Yeah, they're, no, they're, they're sensitive it's, little it, guys. Yeah, and it's quite a commitment for an undergraduate. I mean, yeah. one of the things that you do around here, uh, I thought we would wrap it up, I talked a little bit about this, hmm. is that one of the things that you do in our department is very often, almost, well, almost always, you, you run the fourth year thesis class. Yeah. Um, What's that? I mean, I, I know, I'll tell you something, I've, I've said to you, I know I couldn't do it. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> and I curse you every year for saying <laughs> no, it. No, but I just know I couldn't <laughs> do it. I, 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 don't, I don't think I have the, the patience or the um, patience for it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I'm nothing if not self-aware. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> but uh, what's that experience like? Taking like say ten or twelve or fifteen or that one year was it sixty three whatever we had twenty six. Jeez, yeah. remember we're at, folks we're at a department of five, uh, taking that many people, yeah, with all these different ideas and sort of guiding them through. What's what's that like for you? That's awesome yeah. because I get my fingers in everybody's research. Yeah, I get to help design and like I said, that's where I started out. Was I yeah. really like the methodology? Yeah, I yeah. really like trying to plan it and design things. So, yeah, I mean each of the students has their own thesis supervisor, yourself, sure. uh, Paul Dupuy, Cheryl Riedel, or whoever, um, but I still get in there. I still get to have, you know, my opinion and my, my uh, suggestions and say, mm -hmm. so that's good. But, you know, it can be difficult sometimes because uh, the students will come up with topics that they've researched the year before, written a huge lit review on, and they have a good idea of what they want to do, and yeah. while I'm trying to determine whether that's the best, you know, methodological design, I don't know anything about the topic. You know, so I, I you know, <laughs> yeah. I have to learn a lot. I have to sit down with some of them and, and say, okay, explain this to me again, um, so I can get my head wrapped around things. 
Um, so that's what we spend pretty much the months of uh, you know October and November maybe mm -hmm. doing is just the students explaining to the class where their idea comes from, yeah. why they're doing it this way, and, and, and what they're doing. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it, it's good. It's interesting that yeah. I get to contribute to each one of their their research projects. But like I said, uh, it's it can be difficult because I'm essentially supervising 15 students yeah. now that we've capped it at 15. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I'm supervising them, and uh, and of course there's a lot of a lot of um, you know calming that's required. Yes. The students, uh, I, I don't remember being an undergraduate student very well now, but uh, huh. they they do certainly um, uh, get a little bit worked up, yes. a little bit anxious, yes. a little bit concerned, uh, you know, and, and the last thing we want is them to lose confidence in the year that they need to have the most confidence yeah. in themselves. So I'm kind of there as, as sort of a den mother yeah. to them as well. I, I like to think of myself okay. as, as that. So okay. I'd be their friend and I, I support them yeah. no matter what. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, whenever I, I tell my students every year, um, at one point during this year, you're going to want to quit. Yep. Talk to me first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the first thing. And I say, and one of you will cry. Oh, <laughs> probably more than one. There's my but, box of Kleenex. But there at least for them, one of yeah. you will cry. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Yes. You know, uh, yeah. and it, it is a. It's 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 a, it's an amazing experience. And for those that don't understand this here at Algoma, when people do their honors thesis in our department, it's the student who picks the topic in consultation with the supervisor. Sure. But it's not like they walk up to me and I say, "Here, I want you to do more stuff about spinning rectangles." That's right. Yeah. Uh, unless yeah. someone wants to stuff with spinning rectangles, then I'm over the freaking moon. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's a bit of a different experience. Yeah, yeah, but that's just it. And you know, I've had students in the past tell me, especially this past year, tell me, "Oh my God, that was the best." experience ever and at, when they come in they're very intimidated they're very nervous about it but the way I've done the course the way I break it down uh, it it gets them through it at a perfect pace and they get feedback at every level right so they enjoy it so that means I can enjoy it too good yeah. well thanks a lot for, for sitting down with me and doing this I've really enjoyed this okay, um, thanks for coming to my office and doing it <laughs> no um, if people want to find you on the internet how could they find you Google <laughs> I found oh I found your I found your lab web page oh, which good. is lauriebloomfield.weebly.com. Yeah, but they could also go through the AUC link. Okay. Yeah, it's just through the Weeb, uh, on Weebly. Okay. Yeah. And I found your Twitter account, but I don't think you post very often. No. You're at LL Bloomfield on Twitter. If everybody follow Lori because now, now maybe that'll make her. Well, I'm glad you said that. This. Now I can actually write it down and remember what my Twitter account is. At LL Bloomfield. Very yes. good. Uh, you can follow me at dbroadbeck on Twitter. You can find uh, podcasts I do at broken-area.com, davebroadbeck.com, bestepisodeever.com, mmvh.ca. Uh, also, during the election, you can take a look at What's Left, which is on the Talking is Dead uh, feed at talkingisdead.com. And, of course, you can find me here at spitandtwitches.com. Uh, thanks a lot, Lori. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little 
disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time. You every perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute, or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. genome and so they would try to so we are a, a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case it's a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the um, like the host and nevertheless they managed to use precise trickery to make them do what they want. <laughs> <laughs> 